You are listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect. I couldn't come up with a sermon title this morning. And uh, sometimes I wonder what, you know, I... My initial sermon title that popped into my head that I was going to use was The Devil Made Me Do It. And it's facetious. It's a joke. But uh, I didn't want anybody, you know, feeling offended and having to go talk to Hayward about the new young pastor and his bad choice of sermon titles on Tuesday right after vacation. So I thought I'd leave it blank and leave it to your imagination. So I'd be curious to know at the end of this message what you think the title of this message should be. Love to hear it. All right. Well, I wanted to start off by sharing a story, and uh, actually two stories of myself about when I was a little boy. And uh, I used to be a kid who was quite shy. Some of you might not know this about me, but when I grew up, I was a very late talker. I know it's hard to believe. And I actually had... (laughs) quite a severe stutter. And I stuttered quite profusely. And I, I would remember my, some of my earliest memories are trying to say something and not being able to, just stuttering over my words. And it's, it's a horrible feeling to n- want to be able to say something and not be able to. But I was shy and I was quite indecisive. I would struggle to make decisions. And uh, mostly I would leave decision-making up to the people around me. And so if my family was deciding, you know, what to do, where should we go to eat, what should we go do, usually I'd look to my siblings and say, what do you guys want to do? I don't really care as long as it's food. And I would always play this passive, passive role, and, and it used to bug my dad severely that I wasn't able to make a decision. And so a few times in my life, he made a point to try to teach me a lesson. And one particular time, we were at the store, we were at the sporting goods store, and they had a really good swap and trade uh, program for like kids skates and soccer shoes and things like that. So if you're a little, little boy, you know, he, was, he outgrew his skates, you could take your skates in and a lot of times you could trade them or swap them or buy them for a really discounted price of used goods. And sometimes they're almost like brand new. Like sometimes you get some really good stuff there. And so we went to the store and not sure what we were even there looking for, but I came across a pair of amazing rollerblades. Now I didn't rollerblade. I could barely skate on anything, ice skates or rollerblades, but I found these rollerblades and I tried them on and they fit perfect. It was like they were made for me. And so I started wearing them and roller, rollerblading through the store and I'd go and kind of do circles around my dad and be like, look at these rollerblades. If only I had a pair of rollerblades like these. And I'd rollerblade back and forth and I gave him every single possible hint that I could that I wanted these rollerblades. But I didn't want to ask for them. I used to be very hesitant about asking, and I'm not entirely sure why. I hated to ask for things. But one memory that I have that sticks out in my mind was one time we were at the store, and I asked for something. And my mother must have been very insecure about money that day because it was one of those, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. You can't just have everything you want. And I just felt real. So then anyhow, I'm like, okay, whatever, no big deal. But it's like, it didn't end there. Like all the way through the store, everywhere we went, every line, I bet you want that too, don't you? It's like $60. And I'm like, no, I don't. 
And, you know, and then we get in the car and half the ride home, she, you know, like, she was talking about, you know, whatever, how ungrateful I am or whatever. I just want everything I see. And um, it stuck out of my mind. And obviously that day, my mom's insecurity came out. And I just happened to ask the wrong question at the wrong time. It wasn't her heart to scar me. But she was clearly dealing with some issues in her own life that day. And it could be that, that whenever I, there was something I wanted, I would turn to my brother. And my brother was somebody who had no issues asking for what he wanted. He would just say it. If someone said no, water off his back. He didn't care. He'd ask again until he got it. He was that kind of kid. And so what I got really good at was being able to twist my brother's arm and manipulate him to do my bidding. And so I would go and I'd find, see, we were at the store doing a grocery shop with my mom, and I wanted a chocolate bar. I would go find his favorite chocolate bar, and I'd be like, oh, Jordan, look at that chocolate bar. Wouldn't that be awesome? And he'd go, oh, yeah. Mom, can I have this chocolate bar? And then, you know, she'd be like, oh, well, if you're getting one, Mark has to have one too, or you guys have to share it or whatever. And I got really good at getting what I wanted without having to ask for things. And um, so this one day I'm rollerblading with my rollerblades and I'm really trying to give off every hint I possibly could that I wanted these rollerblades. Like, Dad, I'd be the coolest guy in school if I had these rollerblades. Hint, hint. And eventually I kept rolling around and my dad wasn't responding to me the way I wanted. And he said, okay, time to take those blades off. We've got to go. And I was so saddened and I was heartbroken and I put them back and I was looking at them like this all the way out of the store, you know. And we get out on the street, and we're walking down. My dad said, man, you really liked those rollerblades, didn't you, Mark? I said, yeah, I, I really did. And he said, why didn't you ask for them? I was like, I don't know. He said, if you'd asked for them, I would have bought them for you, by the way. I was like, what? Well, let's go back. He said, oh, no, no, you, you didn't ask, so I didn't know that you wanted them. I was like, you knew, you knew I wanted those rollerblades. He's like, no, I didn't. How am I supposed to know these things? I can't read your mind. I'm not a mind reader. That day, I learned very clearly you have not because you ask not. And um, man, these aren't the types of lessons that I like to learn. But that's what happens in life, is that sometimes we've got to learn these lessons. When you have good parents, they'll teach you these lessons. They'll teach you things. And um, another time I was with my dad, and we were driving around. And uh, my brother and sister usually were very outspoken, more dominant in things. And it was around lunchtime. My dad said, oh, well, we stop and grab something to eat. And my dad says, what do you guys feel like eating? And my, my brother chips up and says some restaurant. My sister chips up and says some restaurant. And usually I would just concede and let them decide where we ate. And I was happy to just eat food. And uh, my dad turns to me and says, nope, today Mark is going to decide where, where we're going for lunch. I looked at him and said, um, whatever Jordan said there, that, that sounded really good to me. And my dad said, nope, we're not going to either of those places. You have to decide what you want. I'm like, all I want is food. I don't care where we go, Dad, as long as there's food there. He said, well, you tell me where to go, and we'll go there. And I had this little bit of a I'm like, well, I don't really care where we go. And I was being so passive, and I wouldn't make a decision. And we, my dad just kept driving. And he wouldn't pull in anywhere. My brother would say, oh, look, there's Wendy's. Let's go there. And my dad would say, no, we're not going to Wendy's unless Mark wants Wendy's. And, and my siblings are in the back seat and they're just getting angry and they're yelling at me. They're like, Mark, just choose somewhere. And I'm like, I don't want to. Where do you want to? I don't care. I'm not a, and I just did not want to choose. Eventually, we saw the magical golden arch. I was tired. I was burnt down. I had no more energy left. And I said, 
fine, let's go to McDonald's. My dad said, you want McDonald's? I said, yes, I want McDonald's. And we pull into the parking lot, and I turn to my siblings and say, but if you don't like it, it's your fault. And I realized, when I reflected on that later, I realized what had taken place there. I didn't like the idea of disappointing people. I didn't want to take responsibility for choosing the wrong restaurant and people not liking it and it being my fault. I don't know if there's anyone in here like me who sometimes like to run away from responsibility sometimes. I'm not anymore, by the way. God has done some work in my life. But what I learned was that I have my natural default. My natural default is to want to run away from responsibility, to not confront things. I discovered that day that I would have to bear the responsibility and the willingness and ability to take responsibility for your life is called maturity. That's what it is. And I'm learning these lessons more and more as I see my little kids growing and developing. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old who you'll probably hear when I try to take her into this toddler's room because sometimes she doesn't want to go in. And she plays in there all the time. She'll come and she'll play during the daytime and we'll be in there. But she gets to decide when she comes in and out. She kind of like roams around the church a little bit some days when I'm working and things and when Rhea's here doing it, working on a project. And, but when she goes in there on a Sunday and that little gate closes and she can't leave when she wants, she knows that she is restricted in there and she won't be picked up until we come. So she has her little her little fit, and right now we are learning to try to teach her it's okay to manage her emotions and deal with those things. And for me, when I was growing up, I would give away these decisions, and in the most basic decisions, like I remember my best friend Dan, we'd get together and we'd have these little conversations, say, what do you want to do? I don't know, what do you want to do? I don't know, what do you want to do? I don't know, what do you, you want to do? And it'd be like an hour later and his mom would come downstairs and say, what are you guys doing? And we're like, I don't know, we can't decide. <laughs> And that was like my childhood, total indecisiveness. And it's, I think back and I think, man, what was wrong with me? But I learned that my default in life is to not want to take responsibility because I don't want the fallout of what could happen. I didn't want people to be upset with me. And my default was to be a people pleaser. I found this, I loved it. It says, what are you doing? It's fast Sunday. The devil's food cake made me do it. You know, about probably, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, we are doing a youth night, and I had a youth ask me, when I do bad things that I know I shouldn't do, is did the devil make me do it? And the reason he was asking was because a lot of the people in his family, when things go wrong, the language around what's wrong in their life comes to there's an attack of the enemy. The enemy's made this happen. It's the enemy at work in my life. And so he wanted to know, when we have bad things come into our life, is it always the enemy making me do it? And I said to him, I said, you know what? I don't think you can say that. If, if it's always the enemy making you do it, then you can't take personal responsibility for your actions. If we give that right to the enemy in our life to make our decisions for us, we're not taking personal responsibility for our life. 
It's an easy default position. Sometimes we take the not wanting to take responsibility and we spiritualize it. We can spiritualize it in a way such as, well, the pastor's no longer feeding me. That's a very common one. Um, I would say probably of the people that have left our church that I've supposed personally talked to, one of the main reasons that they usually give is, I'm not feeling fed. And usually what I think when people say that to me is kind of what this young man here was saying. Do you eat more than once a week? Do you eat more than once a week? Is it your habit to eat food on one day a week for an hour and a half exclusively and you fast the rest of the week? Is that your daily routine? Because if it's not what you do in the natural, maybe you shouldn't be doing it in the spiritual either. That if you come to church on a Sunday morning and you've all, your entire week has been void of Jesus, void of God, and you come in here expecting myself or Hayward or the worship to feed you, you're going to be emaciated. You're going to be starving. And the problem when you're starving is that you have nothing left to give. You're desperate. And so all you can do is consume. All you can become is a consumer because you have nothing left. You're in survival mode, the fight or flight. And so you don't have much energy to fight. And so when something happens that you don't like, that you get offended by, it's easier to flight. It's a normal thing to want to blame, to default to blame. That's what I used to do for a large segment of my life. But I, what I began to realize was that I have to take responsibility for my own life, including my spiritual life. That I have to read my own word. If I have to get into God's word every single day and not expect Pastor Hayward to give it to me exclusively. And the problem is, is that the other side of the spectrum is that you consume, you consume, you consume, you consume, and nothing's getting out. And you become spiritually constipated. Who's felt this? It's a real thing. It's when you go conference to conference to conference to conference, you go to service to service to service to service, you follow a speaker, 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 and you can't even remember the last person you led to the Lord. You're not discipling anyone. And your spiritual walk becomes about you. Becomes about you being filled by God all the time. And there's a blockage that happens where there's a certain point where nothing more can get in. And when nothing more can get in, the remedy is not to go to the next conference. The remedy is to let something out. Sometimes you have to relieve yourself. Some of us need some spiritual relief in this place today. And the good news is you don't have to go to a bathroom to get it. You can get it right here. Deuteronomy 30.19 says, Today I've given you the choice between life or death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that your descendants might live. Every single day, every single day we wake up and we have to choose. 
We're going to live God's way. We're going to pursue God. We're going to draw near to him, to which he promises to draw near to us. Or or we're going to do it our own way and look to feed ourselves continually. Because the thing is, I think why people sometimes get discontented coming to church is when they come and they consume and they consume and they consume and they're not serving anywhere. They're not giving anywhere. Because I don't know if you know, but serving and giving is better than receiving. And there's seasons in which we receive. And there's seasons in which we give. But I want to tell you this, that the season that we're fully receiving and not giving anything needs to be fairly short. Because if we're always receiving and not giving, we get stunted. We get stunted. And it's kind of, it's the same with money. It's the same with money, that when you can't let go of money, you hold it in your hand. This is an example that Dave Ramsey gives. You, when you deal with your finances with a closed fist, nothing can get out. You can store it for yourself. You can hold on to it. But the problem is nothing more can get in either. And even a dog knows this gesture. The open hand. The open hand is a gesture in which we give and we receive. And the more we give, the more we will receive. But we can't receive if we're full, we're not willing to, to let what we know, to let our wisdom, let our knowledge, let everything God's taught us, if we're not willing to share that with the next generation and invest in some people, if we're not willing to do, as Joel was saying, the Great Commission, which is to make disciples, which is what we've been called to do as the church. If we're not willing to do that, we're not going to have church growth. And as we move forward, I want us to view church growth a little differently. I don't want us to view church growth as butts in a seat. I want us to view church growth as who are you investing in? Who are you discipling? How many people in this church did not know Jesus last year and know them this year? And stop viewing church growth as church membership rotation where someone leaves one church and comes to our church or someone, say, moves from Padawawa with the military or something and moves to Cold Lake and joins our church. It's wonderful that they're here. But that's not real church growth. That's just church, like, shifting around. You know? Real church growth is the new growth. It's the new, new believers in our church. And we should be seeing lots of them. If we are fruitful, if we are effective, we should be able to look around and spot the new people. But we also got to look inside ourselves and think, who am I investing in right now? Who am I investing in right now? If, if there's nobody that is speaking into my life, if there's nobody that I'm speaking into their life, maybe I need to go with God with it and say, God, who do you want me to invest, invest into? Who do you want me to spend time with? Who do you want me to mentor and disciple? And I'll tell you what, the chances are they're not going to just land in your lap. God may bring them to you, but you might have to search for them. You might have to find the diamond in the rough. You might have to find that, that person in our church. And maybe they will come to you in the sense that maybe somebody will come and give the heart to the Lord at the front. And maybe I'll come to you and say, look, Joe just got saved. He knows nothing about the Christian faith whatsoever. Would you consider walking with him for four weeks or five weeks, teaching him some of the core principles of the Christian faith? 
We'll even maybe resource you with some things if you feel like you can't do it on your own. We'll give you the resources. Would you spend one hour, two hours a week with this individual? Invite them over for supper. Take him out for coffee. Maybe he works at camp. No excuse. He has internet access. He has a phone. He can text. He can call. Call him when he's off shift. Make it work. Let's be a place that we disciple. Let's be a place where growth happens, real growth. That wasn't even part of my message. I need to get back to my notes here, or we're going to go off here. We need to take responsibility for our spiritual growth, and not just our own spiritual growth, but the spiritual growth of the whole family. If your children are malnourished, it's not your child's fault. If you have a five-year-old that's malnourished, or six, seven, eight-year-old, they can't use the bathroom on their own, it's not your child's fault. It's not. And it's the same thing that if you got newbie Christians who are newbie Christians but they've been in the church 10 years, who can I pass the blame to? I think we all got to take a bet. I want to quickly look at Genesis 3, 1 to 5. Because the enemy is a real thing. The enemy is, a, is, is, working in our, is working in the world, is working in our lives. But sometimes we can spiritualize things and we can blame the enemy for things sometimes that he doesn't even need credit for because we do it to ourselves. And I know in my life, usually... What happens to me is that I default back to my sinful nature. I default back to my old way of life because it's easier sometimes. And it's easy for me to say, well, it must be the enemy working in my life. Maybe it is. But that does not negate the fact that I have to choose life, that I have to choose to follow Christ every day, that I have to bear my cross, and I have to follow him. It's a personal choice that each one of us has to make every single day, and we can't blame anybody, including the devil, and so I want to look for a second to hear Genesis 3 and see how the enemy operates, what exactly is happening. Um, so here in Genesis 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than the beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from the tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it, or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now, when you read this story, did the snake force Adam and Eve to eat the apple? Did the snake tie Eve down and force the apple down her throat. No. So what did the enemy do there? He's crafty. He's stinky. He asked a couple questions. He said, did God really say? He put in seeds of doubt. Doubt. 
the enemy is a liar and a deceiver. And what he does is he puts seeds of doubt into our heart and our mind. And we have to be able to recognize the truth and recognize a lie and not be deceived. It's interesting that when God, you know, like when God calls Adam later in the story and he says, she made me do it. You know, it's, it's interesting. Like his initial reaction was to blame, was to blame, was to blame. Just like I used to do. I remember there was a time in, in our family life where we'd come home from school and me and my brother were like ravenous wolves. My mom would buy snacks, chips, whatever, stuff for our school lunches. And we'd come home and we'd eat them all up between four and five. Supper was at 5.30 every single night of my entire life. And the days that we'd come home, my dad would get home from work. We'd start eating supper. We'd hardly eat anything. And my dad would say, why aren't you eating? And my mom would say, that's because they were gluttons and ate a bag of Lay's and all the fruit gummies for their lunches. And my dad... And my dad would say, well, why don't we start eating at 4 o'clock then? And my mom's like, no, supper's at 5.30. It was always at 5.30. It never changed. But slowly my mom started taking the snacks, the goodies, and she'd hide them. But eventually we'd find the hiding place. And me being the good boy, I wasn't going to crack into that treasure chest. But I knew someone who would. His name was Jordan. He was my little brother. And I would go and I'd say, oh, only we could have some chips or some snacks. Don't, don't you want something? And he'd be like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But we don't know where they are. Don't we? And I was really good at this. I could get my brother to do what I wanted for my ease, you know. And then it would come to the day where finally we'd get caught, all the chips would be gone, and I could say, oh, no, 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 it wasn't me. It was him. I watched him do it. I watched him crack open that shelf. I watched him open the bag. I just had a couple too because it'd be a waste to let them go to, you know, go in the garbage or something. I was so evil as a child, wasn't I? I was just horrible. The enemy used me. But it makes me laugh because I look at the way that I used to manipulate my brother, and it's similar. You see in scripture the way that the enemy tries to manipulate us, to derail us from God's will for our life, for God's perfect will. And we have to know how he operates, not so that we can blame him, but that so we can look at where we're weak and re reinforce ourselves. Because if we're being tripped up by the same things over and over and over and over and over again, and we don't make some changes, we don't bring it to God and say, okay, God, where am I weak? And start reinforcing our weaknesses. We're going to be struggling with the same things 10 years from now. And we can't blame the enemy because we have a lack of foresight and wisdom to be able to apply the truth of God's word to our life. It's something that we have to do, to be led by the Spirit, but we have to go to Him. Let's move to the next slide here. I'm running out of time. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10.10 here again. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Some of us here might be feeling like, where's the, this abundant life? What's happening here? Some of us might be struggling right now to be feeling as though our life is seemingly abundant. And some of us may be struggling with sin battles. But God hasn't called us to a mediocre life or one that 
is left with a void. He wants to fill us with his whole presence and that we'd be filled with love and hope and peace and joy and goodness and gentleness and what? Self-control. Isn't that an interesting one? Some of those sound like wonderful virtues, great things, and then God drops the truth bomb at the end with the self-control. What do you mean self-control? That You mean that I have to actually do something? I have to learn to control myself? Yes, we do. That's called maturity. It's called maturity. It's being able to do what is right even when it's hard. Maturity is doing what you need to do even when you don't feel like doing it. And this is what we're trying to teach Sophia. I know you don't feel like doing it right now, but you have to do it. And then I look in the mirror and I say, Mark, I know you don't feel like doing it right now, but you got to do it. <laughs> I'm teaching myself the same lessons I'm teaching Sophia. It's wonderful. It's like I'm getting parented all over again. Sometimes we don't understand what's coming next in life. But we've got to trust God. We've got to lean on him. We've got to be filled by his spirit and led by him. And he will teach us these things as we dig into his word. There is an enemy and there seems to be two extremes that seems to happen. There's this idea of the enemy in which we totally ignore him as if he doesn't exist at all. As if he's just a figment of our imagination or a little cartoon sitting on our left shoulder. Or there's this other side of the enemy in which we blame the enemy and he's the source of all our life's frustrations and everything that goes wrong. When our wife's cooking gets burnt, it must have been an attack from the enemy. Maybe it's that she didn't forgot to use her egg timer. Or she's the type of cook who never measures anything and never times anything and she got distracted. Who knows? But it's easy to blame someone else, isn't it? It's easy to want to blame. See, there's these two extremes. We can't ignore him, pretend like he doesn't exist, because that would be foolish. But the other thing is we can't give him more authority in our life than he actually has. And if you are a Christian and Christ lives in you, you are free from the power of sin and darkness. You are no longer connected to the yoke of slavery, of sin and darkness, but you have freedom. Romans 6.16 says, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. What's interesting here about John 10.10 is the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Is that scripture calls him a thief. A thief is someone who takes something that's not his. And when Christ is derailing thing, when, when the enemy comes into our life and is given authority that he doesn't actually have and begins to derail our life, that's, he's taking something that's not his because we belong to God now. We belong to Christ. We are one with him. We are heirs in Christ. And that's not a place where the enemy has any authority. But you see here, he's a, he's a thief. He's, he steals to steal something means to take something that's not rightfully yours. We are not ours. We're not even our own anymore when you come to Christ. We belong to Christ. And so when we have struggles, it's not up to us to, to fix it all on our own. We've got to fall back to our daddy, to our God, 
to a loving Father, and He, who is the light in us, the Holy Spirit, will expel the darkness in our life. But at the same time, we have to be able to have the tools to know how to do that. And so, here we go. He steals. He's a deceiver. He has no authority. To kill. The enemy wants, to, wants ultimately for us to walk away from God. But he doesn't have the authority in our life to kill us in that way. Like, to kill is something that nobody has the right to do, to kill another human being. The human beings are made in the image of God, and because we're made in the image of God, we are sacred. Life is sacred. And to take another life is to violate something that is sacred. We do not have the right to take another person's life. The enemy has no right to do that thing either. And lastly, to destroy. Well, God wants to build things up. He's a builder. God brings life, abundant life. He didn't come to derail and destroy your life. He came to give you true life. But it depends on what you're seeking. If you're seeking the things of the world, it's going to seem like your spiritual life is derailing your life. But if you're seeking truth, if you're seeking righteousness, if you're seeking after the things of the kingdom of God, you're going to realize that there's a life like you've never experienced before, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5, 8 to 9 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It says to resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. It's interesting here that here in this book, the enemy is likened to that of a lion. I was recently listening to a podcast or a CBC show, and they're talking about lions in Botswana and how they keep picking off the cattle and the livestock of the farmers. So these poor Botswanian farmers have all these cattle, they're building fences, they're doing everything they can to try to prevent these lions from killing their herds, picking off their little calves, and there's nothing they can do, they keep doing it. And so they default to the rifle. They go out with the rifle to start killing these lions that are killing their livelihood. But the problem is, is that the lions in Botswana are protected. You see that here, like when people come onto land, like in Okotoks, for example, not too long ago, and that guy took out his firearm, shot the guy in the arm. The police come, what do they do? Well, the thief's gone, but they arrest the landowner. This is kind of what's happening in Botswana. Their livelihood is being stolen by these lions. They can't mitigate the loss because everything they try fails. And the last thing, which is to kill the lion, is illegal. And if they do that, they get round up and charged for breaking the law. And so they're struggling, and they're losing their life, the livestock. But what's interesting about the story is this researcher at this conf, conf, what's the word? conservation society was watching and studying how lions hunt their prey. And what this woman discovered was that the lions like to sneak up on their prey. They don't like to be seen. And they'll sneak up from behind. And if they happen to stick, stand on a twig or make a noise and the antelope that they're hunting looks and spots them, the lion will get up and retreat. Lions don't want to have to chase and expend any more energy than they have to to take down their prey. And so they come up with strategies in which to sneak up. At the very last minute, they pounce, and they take their prey down. 
And so what this researcher thought was, wow, if when the, when the animal makes eye contact, when the prey makes eye contact with the lion, it retreats. So what were to happen if we were to take reflective paint and paint eyes on the rumps of these cattle? I'm curious what would happen. So they went and they started painting eyes, these reflective eyes, on the backs of these cattle. And funny enough, the only cattle that were getting picked off by these lions were the ones that didn't have eyes on their rumps. Did any of you guys grow up with a mother that used to have eyes on the back of her head? You know what I'm talking about? The mom that sees what you're doing, she knows. She may even be in the other room and she'll be like, eh, 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 I know what you're doing in there. Who's still the cookie from the cookie jar? I know it's you. Well, I don't know exactly how it worked because the last report I could find on this was from 2016. But it's similar. The lion, the enemy that is coming to derail our lives. We've got to see what he's doing. We've got to find our weak spots and reinforce them. We've got to see what he's doing to derail us and mitigate against it. Get eyes on the back of our heads. Start painting some eyes on the, your butts, so to speak. It's not pretty, but someone's got to do it. Who's a good painter here now? Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that others are facing the same type of suffering. See, one of the greatest things that I've been dealing with a couple of our youth that ways that the enemy seems to be picking off our young people is with guilt and condom is guilt and condemnation. And they know what they should be doing, especially some of our kids in the church. They know what the standard is, but they feel like they can never measure up. They're always falling. And then they start to eat themselves up and blame themselves. They allow the enemy to get in there with guilt. And what I've been sharing with them is this, that there's a difference between guilt and conviction. That with the enemy is guilting you, you'll want to isolate yourself. You'll feel so bad about yourself, it'll attack your self-worth. You'll want to get away from the word of God. You'll want to be isolated away from people of God. You'll want to stop coming to youth. You'll want to stop coming to church because you feel so bad that you can no longer enter into church because somehow you're spoiled beyond repair. God's conviction, however, does the opposite. He arrests us for the purpose of calling us back to repentance, calling us back to himself. A lot of our Christian youth are calling guilt conviction, and they got it all wrong. God's conviction is calling them back home It's like that story I shared last week about the girl who was adopted into a family and her former family never took her to Disneyland with the rest of their children, never integrated her in. And how when she finally got to go, even though her behavior was abhorrent, it was horrible, and she did everything to disqualify her from that family vacation, she still got to go. At the end of the first day, she looked up at her dad and said, you know what, I didn't get to go to Disneyland because I was good. I got to go to Disneyland because I'm yours. That what it mean, that's what it means to be a child of God, that we become his. And when we fall flat on our faces, his conviction will arrest us and call us back to himself, call us to a place of repentance 
where he'll pick us up and restore us and love on us and bring us so that we'll be stronger and better than we were before. Paul encourages us that we need not fear condemnation because we can come to God as our loving and forgiving Father, as a loving and forgiving Father. In Romans 8, 15 to 16, he says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. I'm out of time, so I'm going to close with, with two scriptures. James 4, 7 says, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee, flee from you. It's, I don't want to say impossible, but if you are trying to resist the devil, but you're not submitting to God, it's going to be very hard. Because if you're defaulting to yourself and to your sinful self, to try default by default, resist him in your own strength. It's going to be very difficult. But when you submit, therefore, to God, he will empower you. His Holy Spirit and his light will expel the darkness, will expel the work of the enemy in your life. And lastly, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast, to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. I want to remind you that if you're going through a difficult season right now, that it's now, it's not going to be forever. And if you are struggling with things, if you're struggling with guilt and condemnation, there's no need to be if you are saved, if you have Christ in your life. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And there's freedom here this morning. For you to be free from fear, free from condemnation. God is calling you back into his loving arms. Saying, son, daughter, come back to me. Let me restore you. Let me make you whole again. So this morning, if that is you, if you're dealing with guilt, if you're dealing with condemnation, come up for prayer. I'm going to close. Father God, we just thank you, God, that you are a good God. Lord, that you are a loving Father. And God, I pray, Lord, that we would begin to look at our weak spots, God, the areas of our life where we keep stumbling time and time and time again. And Lord, just like the cattle in Botswana, Lord, that we would begin to look and see where we keep falling short. And God, that you would give us the wisdom and the guidance to be able to reinforce ourselves in those areas. God, whether that's with accountability, with good men and women in this church, God, whether that's by putting safeguards in our life to protect against them, but God, whatever it is, that you would bring, bring the wisdom and the knowledge of how to do that. And God, I thank you, Lord, that when we fall flat on our face, that we can come towards you, and you are there to receive us as your children. And God, we don't earn our salvation, continue to earn it based on our behavior. But God, that we have, because we are your children now. We are yours God, continue to shape us and change our desires. Lord, I speak against fear and condemnation in this house this morning. God, I say fear be gone in Jesus' name. Lord, may we not any longer confuse conviction and guilt. 
Lord, no longer let the enemy twist and deceive us into believing a lie. And when we fall, God, when we come back to you, knowing that you are a loving Father, that you are faithful, that we can come to you and you are there and you are right and you are true and you are love and you are there to forgive us. Jesus, thank you, God, that you are calling us up. God, that you love us too much to leave us where we're at, but you're calling us to a higher standard, to living for you in righteousness and pursuing righteousness and what is right, doing what is good. Thank you, Jesus. You have been listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope that you've been blessed by this teaching from Cold Lake Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect.